This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. year, the Retinal Degeneration Fund, a venture philanthropy established by the patient advocacy organization Foundation for Fighting Blindness, spun out Opus Genetics to develop gene therapies to treat rare, inherited retinal diseases. The patient organization's then-CEO, Ben Yerksa, who also headed the RD Fund, recently became the full-time CEO of Opus. We spoke to Yerksa about the genesis of Opus its gene therapy pipeline, and what other patient organizations looking to take a more hands-on approach to therapeutic development can learn from its example. Ben, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. It's good to reconnect. We're going to talk about genetic blindness, opus genetics, and how rare disease patient organizations can drive the development of needed therapies for their conditions. I'd like to start with the Foundation for Fighting Blindness, which was founded in 1971. You'll be stepping down as CEO, a position you've held since 2017. For people not familiar with the foundation, can you explain what it does and how it works? Sure. Uh, Foundation Funding Blindness is really a, a research funding house. We uh, fund research for treatments and cures for rare, inherited, and age-related retinal degenerations. It's essentially the largest private funder of retinal research in the world. Uh, and like you said, it's been around for over 50 years now, and it funds essentially early and late translational research some clinical development projects like natural history studies, uh, also has uh, open access free genetic testing at the moment that helps support the patient registry. And uh, there's also a venture fund. So it's a pretty, pretty busy foundation. You've got a PhD in organic chemistry and have worked in drug development as an executive of biopharmaceutical companies. Why did you take the job at the Foundation of, for Fighting Blindness when you did? Well, it, it kind of surprised me, actually. I was um, at a prior company called Invisia Therapeutics, and I knew that the company was uh, going to be in a transaction. And so I kind of opened up my mind to some other possibilities. I got a call about the foundation job and clearly was you know, familiar with the foundation, but I, I didn't really think of myself as, as a nonprofit professional. But when I learned more about the opportunity, uh, talked to the, the new chairman, and we talked about the desire to just you know 
modernize the foundation and do more venture philanthropy and you know, do startups and spin outs. And, you know, all the while, you know, trying to cure blindness. I thought, well, what else, what better thing could I do for my next step? So I was hooked. In 2018, the foundation launched the RD Fund. This is the Venture Philanthropy Fund that you referred to previously. This is investing in companies developing treatments for retinal degenerative diseases. What was the thinking behind creating the fund? Yeah, so it's kind of, kind of an interesting story. When, when I arrived, the foundation had already made two investments. Uh, one was a startup out of technology that came out of Johns Hopkins University, and one was a startup in Paris. So I was like, well, these guys are entrepreneurial. They're, they're, they're willing to, to really do what it takes for the mission. And so when I arrived, I said, um, well, hey, if, you're, if you have an appetite for that kind of risk, how about we get more serious about it and start a fund? And they said, okay, great. That can be one of your first goals. And I was like, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> I've never done this before. But uh, it ended up being pretty straightforward tactically because we had a, a wholly owned subsidiary called the Clinical Research Institute, which was the entity that had been making the investments, but it was also doing some, some clinical work. So really all we had to do was take the clinical work and move it back to the parent foundation then essentially we had a pure play venture philanthropy uh, subsidiary. And all we had to do was change the name and, um, you know, re revamp the board and some, some governance, but um, then we're off and running. And uh, by the time we announced it, we had a $70 million venture fund. It's relatively early days for the fund, but how much has the fund been able to invest and in what can be said about its impact to date? Right, so we, uh, we actually have two funds now. So the first fund was a little over $70 million. It's fully invested, uh, including its reserves. So it's made 10 investments and uh, it's just kind of waiting to harvest those investments. Uh, I can say though, even for a young fund, uh, fund one has already had two exits. So there was a company that uh, the fund invested in called Videri Bio which is working on optogenetics, which is a technology to potentially restore sight in eyes that don't even have photoreceptors anymore. So really, really uh, cool technology. But we uh, invested in a $21 million round with some great venture backers like Atlas Venture. And um, about 14 months later, it was acquired by Novartis. And uh, we, we got a quick exit and a significant one, and uh, that was kind of really validating for the model of what we were doing. And then we had another exit with a company called Checked Up, a smaller investment that, that exited uh, a little less than a year ago. So I'd say, you know, so far, um, the model's working well for the foundation in terms of accelerating research and also providing some returns. Uh, they've started uh, raising for fund two. They're uh, over 40 million right now with a target of 75 to 100 and have made uh, a couple uh, investments out of fund two now. So um, more money to raise. There's more, more research in these dollars than the dollars that the foundation has. But um, so far, uh, it's, it's been a pretty successful venture. And to what extent has the fund enabled the development of therapies that might not otherwise have been developed? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we, 
these are essentially impact investments or mission-related investments. So we we have to have the mission at the forefront of what we do. So there are a couple of good examples. I think one is um, actually the first investment we did when I joined the foundation. It was uh, investment in a program at a actually a public company called Procure. They're in the Netherlands, platform company working on RNA-based genetic therapies, and they had you know a dozen potential projects to work on. But project number six on the list was one for Usher syndrome 2A. And that was you know, a, an important priority area for us. And we approached them and said, hey, if we split the cost 50-50 to go from preclinical to phase two proof of concept, will you make that your next IND filing? And they said, yes. So we struck a deal and uh, they were actually in the clinic uh, in 12 months from signing that deal. And now they're going into phase three. So, you know, that's a program that would have just been sitting on the shelf if we didn't come in and put our put our money where our mission is. Opus Genetics is a company formed by the RD Fund. How did it come about? So the Opus Genetics origin story was kind of born out of frustration, believe it or not. It was frustration at the foundation level and even for me personally and professionally, um, this kind of bird's eye view of, of our field. And we see some really great academic labs like Gene Bennett at Penn, for example, who is one of the inventors of Lexterna and a co-founder of Spark. She had a couple of new gene therapies that were ready for development, but they were not being funded by Main Street Venture uh, funds, or they weren't being picked up by pharma. And so they were kind of just getting kicked around and they weren't uh, moving forward at uh, the kind of pace that, that we'd like to see at the foundation. And so we realized that, that some of these opportunities, you know, this is rare disease, and these are some of the smaller of the rare disease uh, genes in, in our portfolio. And we realized that if they're just ones or twos around in labs, it's not enough to really get a company around. It's not compelling commercially. But if you have a basket of them, then it, then it really starts to work because you pick up some efficiencies, you're very focused in, in one particular area. And when you have a basket, even though they're not huge markets, if they're stacked on top of each other, the revenue actually becomes quite compelling. And so that was the genesis for Opus Genetics was to create a company that was focused on some of the smaller inherited retinal disease uh, populations and to kind of go fast and efficient uh, in, in our development so that when these are ready for commercialization, um, we can have a good business while still doing good. How does Opus balance its desire to bring treatments to patient with the needs to generate financial returns for investors? Well, it's, it's fairly simple, actually. Um, it's really all about the stack uh, that I mentioned. So, uh, if we do well on the science and we develop therapies that have an impact, like single treatment cure for, say, pediatric blindness, um, you know, that's going to be a highly valuable therapy. It, yes, it'll be expensive, uh, but I feel very confident it will be fully reimbursed, just like Luxturna. It's 100% reimbursed. So if we have high-value therapies, uh, there'll be access to the patient, there'll be a uh, price that's appropriate from the market that will allow us to, uh, you know, give uh, good financial returns for the investors. Um, 
like I said, it doesn't really work when you have only one or two products, but if you have three, four, five, six, seven products, then it really starts to work. Your lead candidate is a gene therapy for a form of Libra congenital amaurosis. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it and how does it manifest itself and progress? Right. So our first program is for LCA5, Libra congenital amaurosis number five. And this is uh, a defect in a structural protein in the photoreceptors. So it's basically a protein that helps to move uh, other proteins up and down inside the cell. And when this function is lost, the cells start to lose their function. And then over decades, the cells actually die and degenerate, degenerate and die. And so these uh, kids are uh, born with visual deficits. They're typically diagnosed uh, early on in the first one to two years of life. They're generally legally blind in their first decade. And what's interesting for us is that they have what we call structural functional dissociation. So although uh, a patient may be legally blind, they retain structure in the retina for several decades, so into the 20s and 30s, which means that there still are cells that can be rescued with gene therapy. And that's what's really encouraging about this is that uh, shown in the animal models that they could actually restore structure and function of the retina uh, with a gene replacement therapy. So that's, that's our goal with uh, LCA5. And how does OPGX001 work? What, what is it actually doing? Right. So these are gene therapies. So essentially we have uh, a viral vector, which is we call AAV8. It's adeno-associated virus. And that's just a, a very efficient uh, vehicle for inserting genetic material into a cell of, of interest. And so this particular virus is good at uh, transfecting photoreceptor cells. And so we have packaged a full copy of the correct LCA5 gene into the virus. And when it's injected under the retina, uh, the virus infects the photoreceptors and actually inserts a new good copy of the gene, gene replacement, so that now that cell is fixed and uh, it doesn't have, to, it doesn't have the, the broken gene anymore. What's the development path forward? So we're getting ready to file our IND, which is an investigational new drug application with the FDA. That's the step we have to take before we can start human clinical trials. And that, uh, if we stay on time, that would be filed later this year, uh, sometime mid to late fourth quarter. Um, we're waiting for one more uh, set of data uh, before we can do our final filing with the FDA, but we've done all the other studies. And essentially, if we're cleared by the FDA from that, we would start a what we call a phase one, two study. So it's, it's the first, uh, first in NAN study, but it's done in, in patients who are volunteers. And we would be, you know, primary outcomes would be for safety. We'll do uh, a couple of doses and um, see what the highest well-tolerated dose is. And if we have a clean dose, then we would go into uh, some uh, pediatric patients since that's our target population. So this will all take time, but we should be in the, starting the clinic either at the end of this year, or early next year. 
and um, we'll be reporting out to the community as time goes on. Given that you're pursuing gene therapies for retinal eye diseases, is there an opportunity to shorten the development path by reusing the same vector in preclinical studies? Have there been conversations with the FDA about doing this? You know, it's another good question. And it's, uh, it's a strategy that, that's often talked about. Um, and my answer is that I would say not exactly. Um, there really aren't a lot of shortcuts in drug development. And unfortunately, uh, even in gene therapy, even if you have the same vector, um, if you have a different transgene, basically the, you know, the thing you want to change, uh, I, think, I think basically the FDA understands that if you have the same delivery vehicle, but the cargo is different, it can have a different safety profile. And so you can't, you can't really skip toxicology and some of these things that the FDA requires you to do. But you can acquire efficiencies. You can figure out the most straightforward way to do a safety study in animals prior to human testing. You can figure out the most efficient way to manufacture because the, the capsid itself you know, lends itself to certain manufacturing criteria. Um, certain assays and, and testing and things like that can be very similar. So I think that there are going to be some efficiencies. I just don't think there are going to be any frank shortcuts at the moment um, because safety has to be the number one priority, uh, especially uh, for, for the FDA. And um, I mean, at Opus, our, our motto is um, fast and efficient retinal gene therapies. And what we try to do is avoid risk on risk. So you'll see that for us to accomplish that goal, we use very well-known capsids, very well-known promoters. Um, you know, this gives us confidence that we can manufacture at high purity and at the scale we need, things like that, so that we have the most straightforward approach to our development plan because gene therapies are complex enough as it is. And is the expectation that you'll take this all the way through to commercialization or do you plan on seeking partners? Well, we certainly could in, in the U.S. and potentially in Europe. Uh, what's interesting about rare disease also is that most of these patients go to regional medical centers for their primary care for their for their eyes. So it doesn't take an army to uh, to commercialize these products. Uh, in fact, it's, it's a, it would be a very small team. So it's very manageable for a small company to self-commercialize in this space. Uh, that said. Uh, the other thing with rare disease is that to have the most impact, you need to access patients in multiple geographies. So where we would definitely need partners are in Asia, you know, China, Asia, and South America, Africa, you know, basically rest of the world, because that would just not be feasible for a small company. Is there a model here that other rare disease organizations can replicate? Well, let me, let me think about that. Um, you know, at, at one level, you know, the venture philanthropy model, I think, can be replicated uh, at different scales within uh, any, any sort of, you know, research nonprofit. Um, it, it's helpful to have enough money so that you can have a diverse portfolio just to manage risk. But, you know, when you're making mission-related investments, um, you, you 
you use that mission as your, as your North Star. So I think venture philanthropy is certainly something that can be replicated. Uh, and there are different styles and ways to do it. It's not a one size fits all. So I think it's, it's an adaptable model for different kinds of organizations. Uh, at the R&D level, you know, I think, I think it helps to have scale. Um, you know, when you have, um, if, you, if you just have, you know, one program, you know, here and there, it tends to look flimsy to, to other investors. And so if you, can, if you can have more scale and have multiple shots on goal, I think that that helps to uh, de-risk the situation and maybe attract uh, additional funding. Ben Yurtza, CEO of Opus Genetics. Ben, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And uh, always happy to talk about Opus. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.